Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Good evening. Please stand, we'll begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call Thee Father, O God of heaven, and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. All right, our speaker this evening, our speaker this evening, Dr. William Marshner, received a Master of Arts degree from Dallas University and a licentiate in sacred theology and a doctorate in sacred theology from the John Paul II Institute. In 1977, Dr. Marshner became a founding faculty member at Christendom College and has since served continuously as a professor of theology. A well-known author and Protestant convert to the Catholic Church, Dr. William Marshner has lectured widely on topics ranging from Islam to the heresy of modernism. Dr. Marshner is a regular presenter at the Institute of Catholic Culture, and we are delighted to welcome him back. Please join me in welcoming Dr. William Marshner. It is a pleasure to be back with you, and it is even more of a pleasure to be talking tonight about a little book that many people have grown to love, namely C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain. Who has a copy here tonight? Ah, many people do. Good. The reason I say it's so good is because when it was time to leave my house, I couldn't find my copy. <laughs> okay. Let me say a few words to begin with about the introductory chapter, which many people find puzzling. In the introductory chapter, Lewis wants to set up the context, the only context in which the problem of pain arises. Hmm? If you believe that the universe is an undesigned, hostile zone in which life can only survive in tiny pockets like planet Earth, then you are not going to pose a problem of evil. Why would you expect any special benevolence out of a random, undesigned universe? Lewis came to the conclusion that his own early atheism was inconsistent. He maintained that there was no God and yet railed against him because he was unhappy. 
If, if atheism is true, what's to be unhappy about? Also, in this introductory chapter, Lewis works to set up an answer to the question, where does religion come from? He needs to face that question because only if you believe in a religion do you face something like the problem of pain, as it has been traditionally understood, namely as a problem of justifying the ways of God to man. Now, it would be a very different world if religion had started in remote antiquity, Stone Age, I suppose, the same way our own religion classes start in a college these days. But it cannot have been that way. Many people have the idea that religion started with a kind of a philosophical inference. This is a gorgeous, wonderful world. Ergo, it must have had a maker. Okay. Well, imagine yourself in the situation of the ancient Greeks, not to mention the Stone Age. We'll get to them later. But imagine yourself even in the position of the ancient Greeks. They have a multiplicity of divinities, and many of them are not nice. And even the ones who are most in charge are largely indifferent to the happiness of human beings. Zeus, for example. You all remember Zeus. Yes. Zeus, the greatest and the best. Yeah, well, but according to the story, when a certain titan named Prometheus stole fire and brought it down to man, Zeus was outraged and put Prometheus into a very unpleasant state. I would not like to have my liver gnawed continually by a vulture, and I bet you wouldn't either. (laughs) So the Greek divinities are rarely friendly, and then only friendly to certain special people. So again, if you believed in something like the Greek pantheon, the universe for you is ultimate. It's got no explanation. The gods are part of it. They're just bigger and stronger than you, and they're not entirely in your favor. Again, why would you expect the world to be wonderful? But as soon as you believe in a religion in which God is good, without rival in his power and good, then the problem of evil arises. In this introductory chapter, Lewis does one more job, and that is to lay out uh, a mini-history of where such religion came from, the stages through which it arose. He thinks that religion begins originally, not with some sort of cosmological inference, but with awe the human phenomenon of awe, the sense of the sacred. Hmm? Awe is akin to fear, but it isn't exactly fear. Okay? Awe is something you feel if I told you there were a ghost back there, okay? rather than a tiger. That's fear. 
But if I tell you there's a ghost back there, or that Padre Pio has just walked into the room. Huh? That's all. You see? And ancient man found many things awesome. And thus the idea of religious veneration developed. Now then, eventually, a religion that arose simply by uh, postulating awesome divinities from awesome things and events met and blended with another development in the ancient world. And this was the development of the idea of the moral good. Okay? For a long time, religion and the idea of the moral good were unconnected. Okay? Think about it. The ancient Greek divinities did not demand your morally good behavior. Oh, they demanded some ritual duties to be done. If it was time for their sacrifice, you better make it. These things have to be done on schedule. But as far as moral good is concerned, wow, the gods either didn't care or they had different ideas about it. And the gods were often at war with one another. And mankind simply was not expected to live up to a standard of divine goodness. Well, there was no such believed-in standard. You know how Zeus philandered around. Mars wasn't nice. Athena seems sort of nice, but there are bad stories about her, too. The gods weren't all that nice, and nobody was expected to imitate them. If you had gone to the ancient Greeks in Homer's time and said to them, what our Lord said to his disciples, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, they would have been horrified. Because if you tried to be like God, uh-oh, that was hubris. That was trying to be above your station. That was hubris, and the gods really punished that sort of thing. All right? But this kind of religion that was culturally independent of moral considerations began to yield to a new development when the idea of the moral good itself was more fully understood. This development happened in a period um, the 6th down through the 5th century B.C., a period called the Axial Age. In that Axial Age, many Gentile thinkers in many parts of the world uh, came to understand that moral good was a kind of absolute. Okay? They encountered the moral and rational necessity of doing the good just because it's good. Doing right just because it's right. You all know the story about Socrates. Well, which story about Socrates? Okay, okay, okay. Um, Athens lost its war with Sparta, and uh, the city was taken over by a regime installed by the Spartan army. It was called the regime of the Thirty Tyrants. The Thirty Tyrants realized that they had been impo imposed on an unwilling population. And they were afraid of being overthrown because, you know, Spartan army can't be around all the time. So their hold on power is fragile. 
So they hit upon the idea of solidifying their regime by making prominent Athenian citizens become complicit in their own wrongdoing. Okay? If the Athenians became complicit in wrongdoing, and the 30 tyrants told them to do so, then they would have a reason to keep the 30 tyrants in power for fear that once they were expelled, their crimes would be avenged. <clears throat> Very smart realpolitik here. So the 30 tyrants called in all sorts of prominent Athenian citizens, including Socrates, and they handed out a list of people to be murdered. And they gave to one prominent citizen a name, go murder that guy. And to another a name, go murder that guy. And to another yet a third, go murder that guy. They even gave a name to Socrates. And all of the others went off, reluctantly of course, but to do the tyrant's bidding. Hmm? Because, well, you know why. They were afraid for their own necks. So, yeah, yeah I'm going to go do the tyrant's bidding. Socrates, however, put the name in his pocket and went home. Not going to do it. Why not? Because it isn't right. What Socrates saw, if I can put it in a nutshell, was this. It is better to be bent and even broken in body than it is to be crooked in your soul. Therefore, he would not do what he perceived to be morally wrong. Now then, once people had that idea, and there were people in Persia who got this idea, and people in China, people in India, once people got an idea like this, it wasn't long before they realized a morally imperfect being does not deserve worship as a god. Okay? A god who does moral evil is unworthy to be considered a god, unworthy to be worshipped. Okay? You've got great big powerful things with evil tendencies and you've got to fear them, but worship Veneration? No. And so religion and morality joined even in much of the Gentile world in the 5th, 6th century B.C. Of course, there was a place called Israel where religion and morality had already been joined for centuries. Because the joining in Israel goes all the way back to the divine initiative at Mount Sinai, where God reveals himself not only as Israel's deliverer, but also as a lawgiver who demands righteousness of his people. Only one more element is necessary for Lewis to mention in his thumbnail account of the development of religion, and that is the emergence of the case where an historical person is God incarnate. Okay? And that brings us to Christianity. And there, Lewis finds, of course, in its sharpest form, uh, the, the context for the problem of evil. If God is so good as to be morally perfect and so loving, as to give us his only begotten son. 
how come there is trouble and evil and suffering in the world? Hmm? Now, I am on the first page. of Lewis's chapter two. <laughs> and I'm on that page because there you find the problem of pain in a nutshell. And you get a recipe for what Lewis is gonna do in the rest of the book. Here is what he says. If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. Quote, unquote. Lewis says, this is the problem of pain in its simplest form. The possibility of answering it depends on showing that the terms good and almighty Perhaps also the term happy are equivocal. What does equivocal mean? A term is equivocal when it has more than one meaning, right? And therefore it can be vague which meaning is meant. He says, the possibility of answering depends on showing that good and almighty and perhaps also happy are equivocal words. For it must be admitted from the outset that if the popular meanings attached to these words are the best, or the only possible meanings, then the argument is unanswerable. How do you like that? So, he starts out with a semantic problem. People have in their heads wrong ideas about words like good and almighty and happy, and thanks to those wrong ideas, they cannot apprehend an answer to the problem of evil, even in the simplest form. So, Lewis is now about to unpack uh, these semantic tangles and get us to a better understanding of these key terms. Now, um, on God's omnipotence, People think that if you are omnipotent, that means you can do anything, anything whatsoever, okay? And Lewis is keen to show that this is not true, not true. First of all, he draws the distinction between what's impossible given certain conditions, like it's impossible for me to see the back of my head right now because I haven't got a mirror in front of me, nor one behind me for that matter, whatever I would need. That's one kind of impossibility. More important than that is that which is impossible no matter what. If I had enough mirrors around, I could see the back of my head. But I cannot go faster than the speed of light, no matter what. Okay? The speed of light is impossible to succeed. No massive particle can move faster than a photon. It's basic physics. So I'm sorry, Luke. You're not going to be able to jet around uh, the galaxy in the kind of time your plots require. You, you can't get there. 
Do you know how many light years it is from here to the edge of the galaxy? Oh, no, never mind, the edge, the center. We're not too far from the edge. But if you went from here to just to the center of the Milky Way, do you know how many light years that is? Try about 50,000. 50, the, the galaxy is 100,000 light years across. So just from here to the middle, about 50,000 light years. Luke would look a little antique <laughs> by the time he got to the center of the galactic empire. You know what I mean? There's no such thing as jumps to light speed or better, warp drives. All right. Furthermore, there's a kind of impossibility which is even more serious than that which is impossible no matter what. Because that could still be physical impossibility. The impossible in the far worst sense is that which is impossible because it is internally inconsistent. Okay? Why can you not make a square circle? You're going to say, well, God could. Could he? How many sides does a circle have? Countlessly many. Every, every point of the circumference is like a side. Countlessly many sides. How many sides does a square have? Four. So you're going to make an object that has four sides and doesn't have four sides. It's got four only and more than four only. That's a, that's a contradiction. Okay. God cannot make or cause or bring about that which is internally inconsistent because there's nothing realizable in an inconsistency. Half of what you say negates the other half of what you say. Life is full of things where the impossibility is, oh, maybe it's intrinsic or logical like the square circle, maybe it's something less than that. But I think of lots of examples, such as socialist realism. <laughs> I'm terrible. I shouldn't have said that. Anyway. <laughs> Well, all right, let's agree at least that omnipotence does not cover the self-contradictory because the self-contradictory leaves nothing to be covered. It negates half of itself with its other half. So omnipotence does not cover the inconsistent, the logically contradictory. Okay, so what? Well... Let's look for a moment at what we all want. And we all wanted it since we were knee-high. And we don't see why we shouldn't have it. We all want to have friends. Being all alone is no fun. You wanted playmates, didn't you? Of course you did. You can't be happy completely without playmates. Well, at least without parents. What would it be like to be all alone? Horrible, right? People want company. Good. But along with the possibility of having company, there must come a medium through which 
meeting and communicating is possible. Okay? People think, gee, if I were just a pure mind with no body, and you were just another pure mind with no body, uh, we could just meet mentally. You think so? I don't think so. I mean, here I am, a pure intellect thinking my thoughts. Ah, oh, thinking my thoughts. Thinking about square circles, for example. <laughs> and all of a sudden, a thought pops into my head uh, about trigonometry. How do I know that that's another mind trying to communicate with me? How do I know? If I can hear you and you come bursting into my room and say, yeah, but what about the sine wave? Dan, I know, I've met somebody who's trying to communicate with me, pulling me off my favorite subject, all right? But if there's no material medium, like air in which we can make sound waves, bodies in which we can touch each other and shake hands, there is no human society, no human collaboration, fellowship, fun together, anything like that. Does everybody see that? It's a simple, we all take it for granted. Okay. And don't tell me, well, it might not be so for us if we were angels. Never mind how the angels have society. That is not for you to know. And I'm not here tonight to do angelic metaphysics. Okay. Our talk is about human beings. And besides, if I were one of those highly competent and polished angels, I'm not sure I would want much company. <laughs> Me and God, that might do it. But anyway, anyway, uh, if you want company, playmates, then there has to be a material medium through which you can meet and communicate with your playmates, right? Okay. Now, as soon as there is a material medium, we quickly find out that that medium has to be independent of our whims. It's got to have laws of its own. Suppose all of the matter in the universe were totally subject to my will, okay? And I didn't want to hear from you today. Then the air would not resonate to your voice. Sound waves would catch in your throat. And we couldn't communicate. See? The material medium has to have a nature of its own and not be completely subject to our wills and whims. But if the material medium has a nature of its own, it doesn't seem that it can be equally agreeable to all of us. Suppose I'm going downhill. That's nice. Ground slopes away, traipsing along easy. <laughs> but if you're coming the other way, you're coming uphill. Not so nice. I can't be going downhill unless somebody else can be going uphill. See what I mean? Okay. How about this? On your now 
mature reflection. Do you think that what you always wanted when you were about four years old is still possible? Namely, you wanted to have friends, you wanted to have other kids come over and play with you, but you wanted them always to do what you want. Okay. They may come and play. Oh, yes, please come and play. But you can't win. I get to win, not you. Does everybody see? That is the human condition, if you will, in a very primitive form. This is our desire for society and communication accompanied by the ego shriek. Hmm? The primordial ego shriek. Me! We have to play the game I want to play. I bet none of you remember how you were when you were two. I'm glad I don't. But when you were two, your mother knew there was no point in having kids over. You couldn't play with them. You didn't have the self-control. You didn't have a sense of what was due to other people and their feelings and so on. See toy, grab toy. My toy. Anytime somebody, some other kid grabs at one of the toys, no, my toy. No play possible, right? It may be three and a half, four years old, that begins to change. A little bit of play becomes possible but it's becoming possible only because the primitive ego shriek is being overcome by other conditioning. Yes? Especially mom and pop. Yes. Why is it that children always get along better with their grandparents than they do with their parents? Oh, grandpop is so much fun. Grandpop, grandmom is the cat's meow. What the kid doesn't realize is that grandmom, grandpop, only like to have that kid around because mom and pop have done the hard work of making the kid bearable. <laughs> Left to his or her own devices, Every child wants to be a whining brat. <laughs> Am I too harsh? <laughs> I don't think so. Oh. I haven't had as many children as some of you. I've only had four, really. But um, I, got, I got four cases. Point two. <laughs> and I bet you have many more. Okay. We need conditioning in order to make our society with other people possible, play possible, yes? And in all that conditioning, we are not having everything just the way we want it. Now then, let me give you the popular definition of happiness. It's been in the literature ever since St. Augustine. Quote, happiness is having everything you want. <laughs> e, 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 e. 
St. Augustine was wise enough to add a subordinate clause or a second clause. Happiness is having everything you want and wanting nothing amiss. <laughs> That's the catch, right? But people forget about that second clause. People think happiness is having everything you want. I'll be happy if I get everything I want. When the kids come over to play with me, I'll be happy if I get everything I want. Yeah. And now do you see the impossibility. If you have everything you want, you're impossible to play with. And then you have no fun, and then you haven't got everything you want. Now, um, this material medium that makes our encounters and our communication possible, and which uh, has an independent nature of its own, can be used not only for us to benefit one another and be nice to one another, it can also be used for us to hurt one another. Right? Yeah. I pick up a stick. Whoa, let's play with a stick. Sticks are fun. Maybe I beat you over the head with the stick. Oops. Now then, would it be possible for God to have created a world in which there was this neutral or independent material medium in which we could meet and play, but every time we tried to hurt one another, the stick turned into a wet noodle. Could God bring that about? Well, look, do you really want an independent material medium, a world with a predictable nature of its own, or do you want continual miracles and basically natural chaos? I pick up a stick because I want to go uh, poke down an apple. The stick turns into a wet noodle. I will get my apple. What good is that? Okay. I pick up another stick and it stays stiff. Unfortunately, I aimed it at you. Okay. If the world is utterly unpredictable, how is a child to learn anything? Matter must be indifferent to our wishes. And if we are to remain free and active and learn how to behave, God cannot be continually intervening to head off hurts. And the hurts, you know, can be crude, like sticks over the head, or subtle, like when I try to vocalize to you some nanny, nanny, hoo-hoo, I have more than you do to make you jealous or to insult you or something like that. Should the air suddenly cease to vibrate? Should my communication become impossible? That would require continual miracles and hence no predictable system of nature. Does everybody see? Okay. So what we all want in childish primitivity is impossible. God cannot have made a world in which we could play and never hurt one another. Now then, and, and, and when I say never hurt one another, I don't mean just poke one another's eyes out. I mean, hurt one another emotionally. You know how it is with little kids? If they don't win the game, they feel emotionally damaged. They run away and cry. 
It made me sad. I lost the marbles game. Whatever they're playing. And I wanted to win, and I didn't win, and now I'm sad. Yeah. Welcome to the world in which suffering has a role. Emotional shocks have a role. Just like shocks on the rear end. Yes? Okay. I now turn to another topic, because I'm turning to another chapter. This is Lewis's chapter three. You didn't think I was going to get through the whole book tonight, did you? I know I got another lecture next week. Chapter three is devoted to the goodness of God, the topic of God's goodness. What do we mean by goodness? If you say that a person is good or good to you, what do you mean by that? Can we take a word from our experience of benefits and pains and apply it to the, the actions of God? We know what it is for us to be self-controlled and morally good. Are we sure we know what it means for God to be good? In this chapter, Lewis takes you through a little exercise to illustrate the concept of analogy. Okay? Our goodness and God's goodness is not just the same. But there is an analogy between them. The goodness of God is not wholly unlike ours, but it goes further than ours. It's deeper, it's bigger, but it doesn't just contradict ours. It would be a very sad world. I'm sorry, it would be an Islamic world in which um, people agreed that misleading one another was a bad thing. We should tell the truth to one another. But then God said, I will lead whom I please, and I will mislead whom I please. In other words, and that's a verse in the Quran, by the way, it seems as though Allah contradicts at least one point in the human understanding of what's good, morally good. This is why Islam insists that we have no natural understanding of what's really good. Okay? But it's worse than that. If God misleads whom he pleases, how do I know he's not misleading me by revealing the Quran? How do I know that? You see the problem. No, if God's ways are to be intelligible at all, there must be at least an analogy between our understanding of the good, the moral good, and God's understanding of it. Okay? He may be stricter than we are. He may go further than we do. But his understanding of what's beneficial to us good for us, cannot be wholly alien. And Lewis gives you uh, a story to illustrate that idea, a story from his own early life. When he went to uh, university, he fell in with a set of young fellows uh, who were enough like him in many ways. They could be friends with them. Uh, they weren't Christians. Neither was he at that time. 
but they had a better sense of morality than he did. And he began to understand from their example how painfully inadequate were his own notions of the good. And maybe you have had an experience like this. If you were raised in a bad school where everybody cheated and the masters beat you severely, and suddenly you go into a school where the masters are kind and nobody cheats, and you still try to cheat, your friends are going to look at you with horror. And you're going to get the idea, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What little scraps of good I know are not good enough. Hmm? From the little scraps you have, you can move on to a deeper view. But you're not going to move on to an absolute contradiction. Does everybody see? All right, that's Lewis's example. And it's a teaching tool to get you to understand the idea of analogy in connection with the word good. Now then, once we agree that it makes sense, analogous sense, to talk about God's being good, we can raise the question, what does the goodness of God amount to? And here, just about everybody has the same answer. The goodness of God amounts to his being loving towards his creatures, towards us in particular. God is good in that he is loving. Now then, we come to another ruinous, popular definition. This time it's the definition of love. You get a, you'll understand this if you reflect on your own youth and childhood. If you love me, you want me to be happy, don't you, Daddy? Sure, sweetie, what's up? If you want me to be happy, you'll give me what I want, won't you, Daddy? Sure, sweetie, I guess so. What do you want? And it turns out pretty soon the 16-year-old kid wants a Corvette. Okay? Now, there are several reasons why I would not give a 16-year-old kid a Corvette. Okay? Reason number one, I can't afford it. Set that aside. Reason number two, it goes too fast. This is a dangerous temptation. Okay? Kids don't have enough restraint to drive a muscle car. Reason number three, they're going to have all their little friends crowding in there and producing a car full of kids out on a joyride. Car full of kids, everybody's yakking, everybody's hilarious, nobody pays attention to the road. It's a recipe for disaster. Now, am I too old and grumpy? Have I missed an important truth here? No, I think I'm on to something. A lot of times what kids want is something they really shouldn't have. But if you don't give me what I want, I can't be happy. You want me to be happy, don't you? You want me, you want, you, you love me, don't you? The assumption here in Lewis's phrase is that love is understood in terms of senile benevolence. Okay. His example is Old Grandpop, pretty dotty upstairs, 
And all Grandpa wants is for the young people to have a good time. You just go out and do what you want and have a ton of fun doing it, and I'll see you all when you get home. Yeah. That's senile benevolence. Real love is not that way. As you can see from remarks I made a few minutes ago about mom and dad doing the hard work to make the kid bearable. Real love bothers with the loved object. Okay? Lewis has four examples of this kind of thing. It's easy to see. Example number one. The love of an artist for his work. If it were just a sketch he didn't care about, the artist would toss it off and never touch it again. But if he cares about it, he's going to go over, he's going to erase, he's going to correct till it's just right. Now imagine a painting with nerves, a painting that felt some discomfort at correction. Yeah? The artist's love for his work would impose a certain amount of suffering on that nervy painting. Got it? Okay, next example. The love of an owner for his pet. I hope you're all kind enough not to notice the amount of dog hair on, <laughs> on my jacket tonight. I, I, I guess, it's shedding season. But anyway, um, a dog, for example, left to his own devices, wants to snap snarl, um, uh, urinate just any old place. And so what you have to do in order to make the dog a good pet is correct a lot of things. Many of the dog's natural instincts have to be blunted, shall we say, or redirected. And the result of that however, is not just that the dog is miserable, this is the wonderful thing, the result of that is that the dog is better, healthier, longer lived than a dog in the wild. So the owner really does love the pet. Out of love disciplines the pet, disciplines it for its own good. And yet the dog cannot be expected to find all the discipline continually uh, congenial. All right? Next example, a father's love for his son, mother's love for her daughter, a parent's love for his or her child, okay? What would you think of a parent who said, I want you to be happy, son? Good, thanks, Dad. Um, so you won't mind if I um, swipe a hundred bucks from that guy across the street? What? Yeah. I mean, you want me to be happy, don't you? I need a hundred bucks. Um, and uh, the guy across the street has a hundred or two lying around. I'll just sneak in over there and swipe some. And uh, you won't mind that, will you? And suppose Father says, well, I just want you to be happy, sweetie. I don't think you'd approve of that parent. A parent wants his child to be happy, but not on base terms. I don't want you to be happy in ignobility, in selfish crime. And so a real father is going to correct the aspirations uh, of his child, and likewise the mother, right? 
It's children who are spoiled. Back in the old days, when there were lots of illegitimate children, a word which is now out of use, but there were illegitimate children uh, in, the, in, in the great houses of yesteryear. And who got spoiled? The illegitimate kids. You want a sweet? Have a sweet. Anything you want. But the heir, the legitimate son, wasn't allowed to be raised that way because on his shoulders the family future would fall. The legitimate son had to be trained in virtue and in effectiveness and in intelligence. Only the bastard could be allowed to run free and batten on sweets. Am I right? Yeah. One last example that Lewis gives us, and it's in a way the most telling, it's also the most dangerous. Consider a man's love for his wife. Suppose God's love for us is like that. When you fall, I'm going to talk from the man's point of view because I don't understand the other point of view. <laughs> when you begin to fall in love with a woman, do you then cease to care how she looks, how she dresses, how she smells, or do you then first begin to care? Huh? Indifference toward a woman's conduct, dress, looks, hygiene, is precisely that. It's indifference. It's not love. Love cares. If I love you, I want you to be beautiful. Okay? So I want you to wash the green dye out of your hair. Okay? I want you to shed that, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Iroquois, never mind. Mohawk. There you go. <laughs> I care what you look like because I love you. I think you're, I think you're wonderful. And so if you have a speech defect, I want you to work on it and get it fixed. If your grammar's bad, I want it fixed. Right? So real love insists on correcting the beloved where necessary. The painting, the dog, the child, the spouse. Real love insists on correction, not indifference to failures and vices. Oh, dear. We now understand complaints about God a little bit better. Why doesn't God just leave me alone? I never did anything to him. I have a few sins, well, there's no skin off his nose. Why didn't he just leave me alone? People don't want to be loved by God. They want something less than love. They want senile benevolence or outright indifference. But God has given us the intolerable compliment of loving us. Oops. Oops. Now, when we meet again, we have to take up the next question. Looky here. 
If God's love is real love, but that means that his love towards us has to be so much turned to corrective action, why do we need so much correction? What's the matter with us? Why do we need so much correction? I have yacked through my entire allotted time, and I'm now only six minutes short of Bill Clinton's record. <laughs> and so I have said my last. Thank you all very much. See you next week. Thank you, Dr. Marshner. Thank you very much. And you can see why I took every possible class I could at Christendom College from Dr. Marshner. He's just wonderful. So with that, you're open for a couple questions, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Questions. My name's Joe. I'm with Holy Trinity Church in Gainesville. Uh, every time I've uh, looked into the, the great mystery of pain, it seems like the Catholics have a solution. You can unite your pain with the pain of Jesus Christ. What happens to the rest of the world, the Buddhists, the Muslims, the, the Hindus? That's a mystery. I don't even know how to think about it. Well, yeah, I... Catholics, they can unite their pain with the pain yes. of Jesus. Like how do they and deal so with have, it is what they're at. We have many advantages. And so the pain and suffering that comes our way uh, is more likely to be beneficial to us than to others. And that is a great mercy to us from God. What's next? Uh, we have an email from Jim in Washington, D.C., he says, I can see why suffering is part of the package in general, but could you address specific forms of physical pain? For example, couldn't God have brought the universe into existence without certain, he says, smallpox and cholera, but more extreme forms, you know, you know nice. Couldn't he have been a little bit nice about it all? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hesitate to broach that question. Because, though you may be surprised at this, I am not an expert at world making. Okay? I mean, once you agree or decide, in God's case, once you decide to have a world with the laws of physics such as we do, the laws of chemistry that follow from those, and biological consequences of all kinds. Can you really have, what do you want, a bug-free world? That gets to be a problem. There are all kinds of ecological trade-offs that have to be considered. Um, I mean, obviously it seems logically possible that natural history could have been conducted by God so as to prevent the rise of viruses. But then you think about it. Is that really true? Okay. Could you have cells on which viruses depend and not have the development of an organism predatory on the cells? Okay. Is there a way to prevent all that? And what else would the trade-offs be? As I say, I'm just not an expert at world-making. So I'm reluctant 
to dive into a question like that. What I'm not reluctant to dive into is a similar question, which was submitted to me earlier by a former student who's here tonight. Could God prevent only grave suffering? Couldn't he have created a world in which God lets us insult each other but prevents us from murdering each other? Think about our legal system. It leaves us free to insult, but not free to kill. Couldn't God have created a world that ran more like our legal system? (laughs) Well, not too much like it, I hope, but... uh, Um, This is a question I can handle, because this doesn't require me to assess the various geophysical trade-offs that you would get from physically altering the world just enough to get rid of some bug. Um, This question I think I can handle, because, first of all, um, comparison between the laws of God and our legal system um, are illegitimate because it's using, the comparison is using the word freedom in two different senses, okay? God gives us free will, and free will does not come in degrees. You either have it or you don't, okay? Legal freedom is different. Nobody in the Soviet Union had legal freedom. Well, not much legal freedom, but they all had free will. And legal freedom is a matter of degree. And legal freedom doesn't prevent you from doing what you freely will and choose to do. It simply says what society will try to punish you for. Now, God also has a legal system like that. But it's not his physical system that allows free will. The divine system that resembles our law is the punitive system which God has in place. He has commandments and he announces punishments for those who break the commandments. Right? And God's commandments are a little bit finer grained than the law. Yes, God will punish you if need be, eternally, for killing somebody. But I'm sorry to say, he will also take pretty stern action against you for your insults. Because it says in Scripture we're going to be judged on every idle word. Okay? That's the scariest verse in the Bible to me. (laughs) Okay, what else? Yeah. I had a similar question online about, do you have any other recommended resources on redemptive suffering? The person I got online was asking for his non-Catholic alien mother, but is there any other books besides C.S. Lewis's text that you would recommend on uh, basically the same thing, problem of pain and suffering, redemptive suffering? Well, you can start by reading Colossians. Find the verse where Paul says that we make up in our sufferings what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And uh, it's a very mysterious and difficult verse, but there's been a great deal of commentary on it, not only from theologians, but more importantly from spiritual theologians. 
Um, there's a whole library that's called ascetical, ascetical theology that teaches you how to bear pain, how to see what's beneficial in it, how to unite your sufferings with those of Christ, how to turn your will away from where it wants to, to live, namely, uh, it wants to live in and on yourself and continually reflect on, oh, poor, hurting me, which is perfectly understandable. But with training, with spiritual exercise, with prayer, you can turn your will in another direction, away from self-pity. Okay? But I, I'm sorry, I don't have um, a string of titles with me. Maybe some of the clergy in the back of the room could help with that. Thank you very much, Dr. Marshner. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.